I walked into Lulu's Bar on Pacific Avenue in Santa Cruz in January 1980, my eyes turned to the corner of the room where a dark-haired man with an Elvis-style pompadour sat at a small round table with a drink. Hey, Mike, I said, a second set's supposed to start now. You got to come back and play it. Yeah, I know. You need something? I said, let's walk back together. Now I'll be back. Mike Bloomfield was the greatest rock blues guitarist alive, but he just played an awful set at the Paradiso nightclub around the corner and wasn't there to start the second set. As club manager, I had to find him, and Lulu's was a safe bet. Nicknamed Guitar King, Bloomfield learned from black blues pioneers like Muddy Waters and Howlin' Wolf in his hometown Chicago. By the time he hit his early 20s, he was so good Muddy Waters and Howlin' Wolf wanted him in their bands. Tonight he played sleepy rhythm and sour notes and appeared to nod off slightly. I feared rumors of his heroin habit were true. He looked hollow-cheeked, kind of deserted. The grit was gone from his lead guitar sound with the Paul Butterfield blues band in the 60s. So was the blaze of wild riffs he played on Bob Dylan's Highway 61 Revisited album and his loud, crackling melody with Dylan at the Newport Folk Festival in 65. Before he started playing the first set, I was freaking out at the sound man. He set the soundboard for Bloomfield and then casually announced he was leaving. I wasn't a sound man, so I had to work the board. Uh, that means stress for me. This is fucking Bloomfield, I said. You can't walk out on the show now. You'll be fine. Don't touch anything. The board is set where it's supposed to be. I sat at the soundboard, watching Bloomfield's dismal start, but I couldn't bring myself to tell him to shape up and play. Bloomfield's lofty talent intimidated me. I couldn't approach him while he was performing. I adjusted the sound slightly, but it didn't help. I looked around and people could tell he was off. After his last song of the set, he stepped off the stage and walked out the door. When he returned for the second set, he really woke up and came to life. I didn't know if he got some drugs or the hard drink soothed him. Whatever it was, he walked on stage, grabbed his red Gibson hollow body guitar, plugged it into a small amp, twisted some knobs, and hypnotized the crowd. He started with Albert Shuffle, an emotional tribute to blues legend Albert King. Then came Born in Chicago, a moving psychedelic blues about friends being shot down at a young age in the Windy City. At 36, Bloomfield was on, if only intermittently. But tragically, he'd be dead in a year overdosed on heroin and found in the backseat of a car in San Francisco. Investigations said his body may have been dumped there. Bloomfield had been lured to San Francisco from Chicago with the Butterfield Blues Band to check out the vibrant music scene. 
music really spoke to people then, fueling a passion that had concerts and nightclubs booming. Bloomfield became a legend, and seeing his talent fade in the first set at the Paradiso shocked me. I knew drugs were rampant in the music scene. Now I felt it in my bones. I saw a Texas country blues wizard, Lightning Hopkins, in a small club in San Francisco once. He brought his gritty music with no filters. He sat in a chair, fedora perched on his head, playing acoustic guitar with a drummer using brushes. Someone in the front row kept moaning over the music's greatness. Oh, my God, he wailed in a hushed room. I looked closer, and it was Bloomfield moaning in awe of lightning. Bloomfield picked up a lot watching the greats close up in Chicago. He not only learned from Muddy Waters, he adopted him as a father figure. This young Jewish kid's consummate businessman father disapproved of his playing his loud, buzzy guitar. He wanted Mike devoted to his schoolwork in the family business, a restaurant supply house. I was determined to meet musicians, talk to them, and hear how they talked while running the nightclub. I learned that they often spoke like they sang and wrote lyrics like they talked and lived. I searched for what it took to be a musician beyond technique, the X factor in a person's makeup, but I also wanted to learn more guitar licks and the 12-bar blues structure musicians used was like the Magna Carta to me, and I was studying it. With Bloomfield, I felt his depression and sadness. I sensed how close he was to death. You ever hear of Curlian photography? He asked me at the club one time, where they take a photo of you and it shows your aura. Yeah, I said. Well, if they took a photo of me, the aura would be totally black, he said. I've been living in the woods of Santa Cruz Mountains, trying to get over my breakup with Rose, the mother of my son, Jesse. I was a bit lost, surrounded by some lonely souls, drunkards, and dreamers. Fascinating mystics exploring Eastern religions and beautiful people also populated those mountains. But so did the drug addicts and vagabonds. For a while, I lived in a school bus and volunteered in a child care center where I'd take Jesse when he was with me. At one point, I took Jesse a few days a week and brought him back to a mountain commune Rose lived in. I also followed music and wrote stories for the underground Santa Cruz Sun newspaper. Pay was about 15 or 20 bucks each. I remember parking in downtown Santa Cruz in my 1956 faded white school bus, typing rat-a-tat-tat on an ancient black royal typewriter.
watching people through the windows, walk by on the sidewalk. I was writing a story about Mose Allison, a Mississippi piano player and songwriter who wrote Parchment Farm, song about a Mississippi state penitentiary and labor camp. He wrote, everybody crying mercy, but they don't know the meaning of the word. One line Mose sang connected for me in my sometimes gloomy state of mind. I don't worry about a thing because I know nothing's going to be all right. I'd been struck by blues music since I first heard it in the 60s. It rung true for me with its lyrics about hard times, human sorrow and loneliness, but also humor and resiliency. Mose was funny. He played a raw jazz and blues piano style that grabbed me. I loved his story, too. He wanted to be a short story writer, being from Mississippi, but found his way writing songs and performing them on piano. I saw some of me in there. At the time, I wondered about finding more direction, getting a break to land on more solid ground. An old college friend named Dell visited me one day at my parents' house in Redwood City, where I brought Jesse to live after Rose asked me to take him full time. Dell mentioned he and his brother, Dan, were moving from New York and San Francisco to start a nightclub in Santa Cruz. He asked me if I'd like to work there, booking bands and writing press releases to generate publicity in local papers about the bookings. Hell yes, I said. I've worked there. I wanted to dive deeper into the music scene. A dark-haired Iranian, Dell worked in the family import-export business in New York and San Francisco. He was crazy about American culture, gourmet food, wine, fashion, and music. He liked talking to people, making them laugh, and personally knew some 60s psychedelic rock scene musicians and was chasing some glory himself. He pointed out that if I take the job, I'd have to turn my back on my mountain friends. He studied psychology and people's energy and believed the mountain people would bring me down and thought there was too much darkness in that crowd. I felt I needed to get away from the mountain crowd too. So Dell's insistence I leave them behind was like a life preserver to me, and I took it. I felt bad walking away cold turkey from some of those people, but I thought it was right for me. One day after taking the job, I walked down Front Street in Santa Cruz with Dell, and he noticed a scruffy-looking friend of mine walking toward me. Dell grabbed my arm and steered me into a corridor between buildings. Let's get away from that guy. I went along with it. Looked the other way. I didn't feel good ignoring the guy, but I had a young son and I needed stability and a future. Plan was to open two other nightclubs in Monterey and San Jose. The brothers trusted me. I felt like I had an opportunity. Dell and Dan delegated a lot on me when we opened the Santa Cruz Club in the summer of 79. 
the week before Bloomfield came to town, I was on a ladder at 2 a.m. putting Bloomfield's name letter by letter on the marquee after closing the club on Saturday night. I wanted to promo the show a week before it happened. The new club occupied an old building a block from the San Lorenzo River that flowed through Santa Cruz. We named it the Paradiso after a club in Amsterdam I'd visited in the 70s, an entertainment mecca for hippies and other travelers in Europe. Our club was built in 1894. It had a brick front and lots of windows. It became a storehouse of memories for locals who frequented the Catalyst, which formerly occupied the space. The Catalyst was a coffee house in Delhi in the 60s and 70s, in a treasured venue for folk music, poetry readings, and small bands. James Baldwin and Henry Miller read there. Culture flourished there in a beat, hippie spirit. Locals watched our restoration with great anticipation. It took months to bring the place back to life. The club was once the posh colonial room of the St. George Hotel. Dark, moody murals on the walls featured ballet dancing women from the 1920s that Dell had hired a local artist to airbrush and revitalize. A huge, vaulted A-frame skylight in the fountain room with its small pane mirror windows, tiled floors, and a centerpiece water fountain anchored the club. It sat next to the stage room and the entrance to a small pub-like tavern with a long bar. It was August 6th, 1979, opening night at Paradiso, and I sat in a stuffy little office with an old metal desk and some folding chairs. Dusty Venetian blinds covered the window overlooking Front Street, a block from the main drag, Pacific Avenue. I had just booked one of my heroes, the eccentric guitarist John Fahey, a folk blues-style finger-picker who also played ragas from India. He had rediscovered black blues recording artist Skip James, a haunting figure and country blues legend from the 30s. He found James in the South and brought him out to play and introduced him to a new audience so James could make some money off his early recordings and record again. Fahey, a skinny intellectual with a buzz haircut, was sitting with me in the office off the kitchen. He wore glasses and a retro striped T-shirt he could have worn as a kid. He seemed on edge, nervously asking me if I knew where we could get some cocaine. I wasn't ready for that, starting my quest to learn about nightclubs and bringing acts to the stage. To make sure I stayed focused, I stopped drinking and taking drugs, so I wasn't up for fetching them for anyone. I'll make a call, I said, though I had nobody in mind. I thought about telling him I couldn't get any to make it easier on myself. No way I was calling old friends in the mountains to get cocaine. 
say he was 40, about seven or eight years older than me, and had attended UCLA as a folklore scholar after studying philosophy at UC Berkeley. He also started his own record label, Tacoma, and recorded on it. Despite his accomplishments, he was jittery, seemed insecure. I'm not sure why, but his vulnerability put me at ease, made me relax. I offered him a beer, and he sipped it, started talking about Catholicism and how much he was into it. I was so steeped in the times, I thought that was strange and made me wonder if he was off his rocker. Most musicians were into Buddhism, LSD, or some kind of magical thinking. He began telling me about a great album by his favorite bluesman, Charlie Patton. He gave me 20 bucks and said, buy the album and listen to it. I took the money reluctantly because he insisted. I didn't get any cocaine because I didn't bother trying. Some 200 people were in the audience, sitting in chairs at small tables. Fahey had another Heineken and was pretty tipsy. When the show was about to start, I walked with him through the cowboy saloon swinging doors that opened from the kitchen into the stage room. A buzz and murmur of people talking combined with clinking wine and beer glasses. Hey, John, follow me up the left aisle, and I'll introduce you, and you can walk up on the stage after that. But Fahey had his own mind. He proceeded to walk up the right side of the room with his guitar in one hand and a Heineken in the other. Ladies and gentlemen, John Fahey, I said into the microphone. He climbed up on the three-foot-high stage and crawled under the grand piano on all fours and settled into a chair with a microphone in front of him. It was a lesson for me on how things can get away from you when a drunk, stubborn entertainer insists on doing it his way. Fahey's eastern drone sound immediately calmed the crowd, and people were spellbound by his song Sunflower River Blues and Requiem for John Hurt. I sat behind the soundboard because the sound man left early again, and I slightly turned some knobs to bring out Fahey's notes. I was nervous changing anything, but the sound was a little flat, so I tweaked it. He was in his own world playing, uttered not a peep to the audience between songs, just swaying his head to the music. Even eye contact with the crowd was rare. His eastern ragas, country blues, instrumentals, mesmerized people. You did a great job with the sound, he whispered to me as he walked off the stage and down the aisle. You have an aptitude for that. Nobody ever told me that before, and I felt a jolt of energy hearing it from Fahey. My self-esteem had already rose that afternoon during Fahey's stage setup. The sound man asked me to test the sound system, which included an amp, a monitor so the performer could hear what the audience was hearing. 
and a microphone. I strummed a guitar and played a few notes. It was the best I had ever heard myself sound after the crummy PA systems I'd played through. I felt a little exposed to the waiters and waitresses in the room. I didn't talk about me playing music to the workers. I felt, oh, they know now. But why else would I take a job like this for such low pay? So what if I wanted to be the people I booked? Paradiso was written by Tim Simmers and recorded for the Radical Songbook on July 3rd, 2023. Thank you, Mr. Poobah.